brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. There he is. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Ara, what's, what's going on? Oh, you know, it's uh, Carolina summertime heat. I mean, it's hot down here. Yeah. I just was upstate this past weekend. It was March weather. And it was warmer here. Next weekend, it's going to be warmer there and cooler here. Go figure. <laughs> hey, thanks for promoting NASA, man. Oh, hey. My uncle uh, worked on uh, the Apollo uh, 12 lunar module. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, his, wow. name is on a, his name is on a plaque on the moon, my uncle. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, so... <laughs> I wish I could go to the moon. I said I said once a few weeks back, I said when they send the next moon landing with with actual people on it again, they should put a life size doll of Alice Cramden and lay her there (laughs) to the moon. Alice, here is uh, here is Mitchell Cohen. Uh, You'll have uh, till uh, till 50. Mitchell, don't you love it that that people have stories? And if we would just take the time to listen, we'd be entertained by each other's experiences. I definitely believe that. Hi, good morning. Good morning to you too. My God, you you know when I when I first heard about your book, Looking for the Magic, um, this this really affects me in the way that uh, I was that jock on the radio when Arista came into being, and and it's like, oh wow. So I mean, in what in 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 what market? Oh my, I was at well Billings, Montana, market number two fifty seven. How about that? <laughs> How about that? I'm, not, I'm gonna have to ask my I'm gonna have to ask my friends in Arista promotion if they remember. Oh my God! The because I mean one of the things that I always loved about and respected Arista for was I believe that they helped usher in the adult contemporary movement of of the 1980s going into the 90s because with people like the Thompson Twins, Haircut 100, Air Supply, there was a movement taking place and Arista's name was all over it. Yeah, that was a yeah, that was a hot that was a hot moment for us. That, that was a lot of fun. Um, obviously, you know we began you know in that in that area what you'd call like hot AC I guess. Um, in the in the seventies, with artists like Barry Manilow and Melissa Manchester, and you know artists like that, and in the early eighties, that thing that became a boom. And of course, once Whitney came along, yes. you know everything just everything just exploded. And was that the connection with Clive Davis? Is that is that why Whitney landed there? Oh yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, one of his A and R people brought him to see a showcase at Sweetwaters uh, uptown in Manhattan. Uh, he was transfixed from by her from from the start, as everyone was who, who saw her at that period. And uh, yeah, it took a long time, like, to build that first album. Uh, you know, to you know, construct something that 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 reflected all all the different facets of her of her personality. And um, then, of course, it became a blockbuster. It became you know the, a record that just uh, just went went through the roof took yeah 
Yeah, I, I remember when Whitney first appeared on the music scene because, I mean, the record reps that would come to the radio station, we'd all sit in groups and listen to those songs. I miss that when, when, when those reps would show up and we would just talk. Oh, is that not a thing anymore? Is that is that not a, a part of your of the of, of the of the game? I, I'm sure that well, one one you know, I love me some iHeartRadio, but that's you, you kind of step free of that if you're not if that's not your department. And they they have bigger names on in bigger cities that that make those decisions for you. Oh, I, yeah, I get it, I get it. <laughs> now to put this book together, because I mean, the, the the coolest thing about looking for the magic is the fact that you you take us behind the scenes. You actually unveil the the wizard behind the curtain. Yeah, there's a little bit of that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it was important. I I started at Arista in, in 1977 as a copywriter, so you know I lived through most of this era. And 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 to your point, a, a lot of what people think of as Arista Records stretches from Barry Manilow to Whitney Houston. I mean, that's pretty much you know the twin the you know, the twin peaks of of, of Arista. And I wanted to fill in some of the gaps. I mean, I wanted to talk about Bill Scott Heron and Patti Smith and the Kinks and, you know, and, and, and go into like how eclectic and how, how diverse, you know, the artist roster was and how exciting it was to be a part of music business and that label in particular during that era. I mean, you know, that, I mean, it, it's not a memoir, you know, I'm not a character in, in the book, but it's stuff that I was a part of, and that that, that I wanted to share. You you bring up Pat, Patty Smith, and and the one thing that I that I truly remember is how a song on the radio becomes a poster on the wall, and Arista was part of that. Yeah, that that's true. I mean, the, the thing about Patty that and Gil and you know Lou Reed is that they really had you know an intensity a drive a purpose to them whether or not they were ever going to have hit records mm-hmm. you know you know in the conventional sense was less important than the statements that they were making and if you got some hits along the way that became posters on the wall that was just you know you know just just an added thing an added bonus and uh yeah, and it was it, it was really really exciting to be a part of all, of of all that to be at the bottom line, you know, like a few times a month to see artists up like that up close to see Lou Reed and Patty at the bottom line or Gil Scott Heron or you know or, yeah it was just uh, you know I was in I was in my twenties it was my first music industry job and I just felt I landed in in the in the most hip place to be and I you know it was fulfillment of all my dreams when I was a kid and listening to you know the hits on the radio so were you geeky like me in the way that when you knew that you were in some place special you you had to get pictures you had to get something to mark that you were once part of that because I've done that in radio where it's like man I this is never gonna happen again this much talent in one building yeah, that's why I wanted to write. I mean, that's why I became a writer to begin with, like in the early 70s when I started to write for the rock magazines for Cream and, and you know, High Fidelity and Fusion and Phonograph Records because I wanted to share my excitement. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, you know, I wanted, you know, if an album, you know, if I bought an album and it excited me or if I went to a show, I wanted to be able to call someone at the magazine and say, oh, I want to write about this. I want to, you know, I, I want to share what I have to say about Elvis Costello's you know, first album or uh, because that, I mean, that's our, that's our mission. Our mission is to, 
find things and share them. I mean, that's what your mission is too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you know, to hear something or see someone that you go like that, the, that the next time they come to town, you want to bring everybody, you know, and say, you got to see this yeah. because <laughs> this is the last, this is the last time you'll be able to see this band in a club. Cause you know, this is This is going to break wide open. And, you know, when you're right about that, about, you know, about an artist or a song or, you know, and it, it's, it's, you know, it's like a, a validation and, and it's like and the excitement of spreading the word about it is why we all end up here. I mean, it's why you ended up where you are, uh, you know, as a music fan. I mean, you, we find the ways to, to express our music fandom even if we can't play an instrument or we can't write a song, we don't have a good singing voice. There are other ways. There are other ways to tell people, you know, this is worth paying attention to. Well, Arista affected radio. And the reason why is because, uh, you know, I started in AM radio. We were struggling. We were trying to keep ourselves alive because this new monster called FM was starting to dominate over us in, in, the, in the Nielsen ratings and things like that. And we needed someone like the Kinks. I'll never forget my program director saying, I can't believe that the Kinks have got new music. And, and so all of a sudden, the older generation of jocks are talking with the new generation, the new age. Mm, and all of a sudden, yeah. you have a band like the Kinks that are connecting us. Yeah, it it was fun. I, I was really, I I was still, you know, just a, a rock writer when uh, when Arista, you know, um, made its first album with the Kinks, and I was like, God, I was such a Kinks fan, and then those those last few albums on RCA, you know, kind of let me down a little bit. And I'm like, why did Arista sign the Kinks? They're not, you know, they're not really <laughs> connecting with me. And then. And then I got I got to the label and they made their album uh, Misfits and then low budget and it's like and uh, you know and then I and then I'd be seeing the Kinks headlining at Madison Square Garden you know it was like it it, it was it was amazing how that happened that you know they'd gone from being you know one of the most important bands of the British Invasion yep. and then having that whole you know creative and, and commercial slump to being a, a huge like arena band in America. It, it was so much fun to watch because they were one of my favorite bands of all time, for one thing. And, you know, to be and to see that happen up close I mean, that's just tremendously exciting. <laughs> One of the things I, I wish I could have been was uh, a fly in the wall in the marketing department because the, the as as a, a, a 45 buyer, I purchased the singles in music stores. And, and then even in the studio when I was going through the music bins at the radio station, Arista's label always stood out. I always knew where to go. So I would love to know the marketing behind the label and how we always, once we saw those colors, boom, we knew that it was an Arista record. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's all. That's about Clive. I mean, uh, it's about Clive Davis. He was uh, notoriously, a, you know, a, a hands-on record executive. He made sure that everything went past the desk. Every piece of artwork, every ad. I, believe me, I know. I wrote the ads for you know quite a long time. Um, that you know, it had to maintain what you know a certain level of. Of, of quality you know, in his mind and, and a certain vision for how things were going to be presented. And what I, what I show in the book are, are some of the examples of the ads that we took out, you know, and how vivid they were and how striking they were and how they used, uh, you know, information and reviewer quotes. And um, yeah, I wanted, I wanted, 
I wanted the reader to get a sense of what the what the label looked like. You know, sort of like. So I took I, I got a lot of old ads from Billboard and Rolling wow. Stone, and, and and put them in the book so people could be like, oh here you know here's how here's how we promoted this. Yeah. Here's here's the here's the way in which we presented it to the world. Whether it was like the you know the first out but uh, the first albums but you know but any of them you know the Kinks or or Gil or Patty. Wow, here's here's a page from the Radio Bible that millennials and Generation Zers will never understand. We relied on R and R to get us connected to Arista's artists. Oh yeah, for <laughs> sure. And I and I and I used to I used to write those ads. Oh my I, god, I, I did for quite a long time. That was like my job before I had the A and R job. And, you know, so it was about conveying our excitement and trying to say, like, this is happening and you should be a part of it. I mean, that's, you know, that, I mean, first of all, I have no idea how promotion people wake up every day and do their job. <laughs> it's, it seemed to me to be so exhausting and frustrating to, like, hammer people for airplay and increases in rotation and, uh, you know, I got to get this ad or, 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 or I'm not gonna be able to walk into the next meeting with Clive. He's going to want to know why it's, you know, to me, that's, that's, that's a skill that I cannot fathom, but beyond that, I had to convey that look, this, this, this single is getting this response yeah. in this market, or this, this record is helping album sales here or MTV play really made this record take off in Des Moines or, you know, it's like, it, it's a matter of gathering up the information and presenting it in a way that makes people feel like if they're not in on it, they're out of it. Now, wouldn't, wouldn't you say that Arista was part of the new British invasion? Because it really seemed like we were, we were so perfectly ripe with MTV, with FM and AM working together in promoting bands and stuff like that. We went right into a British invasion and loved it. Yeah, that was a yeah. That as a lot of people have pointed out, uh, when MTV first started, a lot of American record labels were not making art, artist videos. I right. mean, they, they, you know, labels were not in the video business. Whereas in England, there already were. Uh, you know, it, it, so a lot of the programming in MTV very early on was by the British bands, and so. To a large extent, you know, a flock of seagulls and Hairco One Hundred oh and <laughs> and the Thompson and the Thompson Twins and you know and other artists on other labels like Duran Duran and Human League and Culture Club. Yeah, it was an, it, it was an explosion for sure, and we had a lot of that. You know, we you know we we had the Thompson Twins and Haircut and through uh, you know other arrangements. We you know we got like a flock of seagulls and stuff like that. Yeah, we were yeah definitely in the in you know in the mix in in, in that area. I got to give you an inside thing that happened in, in Billings and just just how quirky Montanans are is that that with a flock of seagulls, they wouldn't let us say I ran so far away because it would remind people of the country of Iran. And I went, you've got uh, to be yeah. kidding me. <laughs> one of what I, I interviewed one of our artist development people for the book. And he said he he brought up that thing that there were there was resistance to people playing a song called Iran. That's it on the radio. So that we had to put in parentheses 
so far That's away. That's it. <laughs> it's like, so, so, that the, so that the people like you would have be able to say, like, I ran so far away by the Black Seagulls <laughs> rather than that. Yeah, he brought that he brought that up. And I'm like, and I wasn't aware of that. I wasn't aware that it was important that that parenthetical title was because people thought, well, yeah, people don't want to hear about Iran. That's it's it. Like, it just, it's just so bizarre to me. Would you say that Arista was an indie label, or I mean, because I mean, it had to start somewhere. It didn't start off brilliant in the beginning, but yet it grew into something un- unforgettable. Uh, it was an indie label during the period that I write about. Okay. Uh, it was independently distributed. Uh, you know, you know how that works. I mean, there was like in each market, there's a distributor. It's not a branch system like 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 the majors. I know this is a little bit in the weeds, but you know that that's how it's defined. And so from from like 1974 when it started until the mid 80s, it wasn't in the, it was an independent label, and then it became part of the whole RCA RCA system. See, in, uh, in, in the in the eighties, I I will never forget being at the Yellowstone County Fair in in Montana when when we played Haircut One Hundred for the first time on Cook Radio. We I mean we were at at the fair live crowd and they just went freaking berserk and it was like a Beatles moment for me because people were dancing to it. I love I loved that band. I went to see them here in New York at the Ritz and you know that band only had one album out and I think they were on the brink of being one of the most important bands of that movement i mean it, it it was like that in a lot of markets and certainly in la and in other places that haircut had like a little like like a real you know a, a real excitement around them mm-hmm. and uh but then uh, you know right before they they were going to make a second album you know they split up and you know their lead singer went solo and there was you know there was a ton of potential there i think um i think that's one of the uh, yeah, that's one of the things that should have happened that didn't quite. Did, does it shock you that a lot of these Arista musicians are still going at it today? They're making it privately in their homes and stuff, but they're still at it. Some are, and it's always nice to hear from them, you know. And uh, you know, I track some of them down, you know, for the book and David Foreman and yes. Willie Nile. Uh, you know, I, yeah, it's it's great. It's great to you know to you know to connect with them and you know remind them or ask them about you know their time with us and know that they're still out there that they're still making music and you know i you know i just you know you know that's that's fun i mean it's like it shows that you know we you know that we were right (laughs) about you know about, about their talent and their potential for longevity even if it wasn't the precise right commercial moment for them you know because of any number of factors you know we didn't have the right single or you know something else from a competing label was a little too similar you know i mean there's so many factors that go into whether something connects or not and to a large extent the music industry is very like capricious and arbitrary but you know, but in the end, if you're as talented as Willie Nile, you know, you can, you, you can make a life, you know, making music. And, um, you know, that, 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 you know, that's something that should give everyone like um, a little like a little optimism. Well, you, you definitely give us the opportunity to step inside the music business, which leads me to the next question in the way of how easy was it to convince Bruce Springsteen to give up because the night? Well, I, yeah, I, I, I had to ask a lot of questions about that. Um, 
Yeah, it happened in the studio. Um, really? Uh, Patty was working with Jimmy Iovine, who was also yeah. you know, working with, with Bruce. They were all in the same studio. Springsteen, at the time, was writing a lot of songs for the album he was working on. And some of them, he decided, oh, this is not going to this is not going to make my record. So Jimmy Iovine and, and the, asked Bruce, I guess, if he could, if he could play it for, you know, if he could bring it down the hall to Patty to, you know, for, for the other album he was working on. Uh, he got Patty a cassette and she, you know, uh, was a, a, from what I hear, like a, a little hesitant, you know, to, you know, to do a Springsteen song, yep. but, you know, but heard something in it, that she knew that she could make it her own and re rewrite the lyrics and play with you know, play with the hook a bit, uh, and it very much became a collaboration. Even you know, even though they didn't physically work together, you know, in, in the studio at the same moment, it became a, a Patty song through Springsteen, and it's still you know a song that they do every night, and, and they're proud <laughs> to do it. And you know, it was one of one of those you know hit records that you know, i mean i remember i was in the audience the you know the first time she ever played it live uh, you know it hadn't it hadn't been out yet it, you know it was wow. it was part of her show and springsteen came out and sang it with her what uh, you know that was and that was the first time any of us had heard that song and we went we went back to arista you know you know the next day or, or, or whenever whatever it was and said like i you know we think patty has a hit i mean there's like this song that she's doing in her act and you know and then you know it, springsteen's a part of it and uh, you know we only heard that once but man you know it stuck with us and and you know thank goodness it was what we thought it was you know it was the record that got her on pop radio for the first time and um yeah it's it, it was one of those odd moments that you got you know that that you always remember that you're sort of like oh i was there yep. the night that she premiered because the night and then we got to tell everybody at arista that this existed and and, and it's going to be great Damn. mitchell you got to come back to this show anytime in the future the door is always going to be open for you oh man thanks thanks no thank you that. for this book you be brilliant today okay i'm gonna do my best you too Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.